Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Bluff, Utah. On the show today, everything you wanted to know about gas prices but were too afraid to ask. What's behind the rise in prices? Does it have anything to do with leasing or drilling on public lands? And is there really a way to achieve a carbon-neutral economy? We'll talk to Brad Handler, who worked on Wall Street for two decades tracking oil and gas companies. Now he's a researcher focused on the energy transition. But first, a quick news update. President Biden signed an executive order this week putting the federal government on a path to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Now, that sounds a long way off, but there are a number of much closer milestones that have the potential to really move the needle, not just for the government, but for the whole economy. First off, the goal is for the entire federal government to be powered by carbon-free energy by 2030. That's just eight years from now. When you consider that the federal government is both the largest energy consumer and the largest landowner in the U.S., that means building out a whole new That means building out a whole lot of clean energy capacity across the entire country very quickly. By 2027, five years from now, the goal is for all new light-duty vehicles to be emissions-free. And by 2035, all federal vehicle purchases will be emissions-free. Overall, the federal government says this will cut its emissions by 65% by the end of the decade. When you look at everything in this executive order, it is a really big deal. The White House Office of Management and Budget will work with the Council on Environmental Quality to give guidance to all federal agencies by early next year. And setting policies like this in motion across the government takes time. So by doing this fairly early on in his administration, it means these emissions goals and all of the purchasing requirements that go with it will be pretty much baked in across the whole federal government by the time 2024 rolls around. Also, the Interior Department's long-awaited report on oil and gas leasing finally saw the light of day. Don't worry if you missed it. The White House released it on Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, which we all know is a surefire way to bury something you don't want folks to notice. And that's a shame because the content of the report was actually pretty great. While it didn't address climate change explicitly, it recommended a number of important fiscal reforms that would ensure taxpayers get a fair return when companies drill for oil on public lands. It suggests raising the royalty rate for oil and gas from 12.5%, which is significantly lower than what companies pay on state and private land. It also makes the case for increasing the bonds that companies have to put up to ensure they can clean up their wells. It's not a coincidence that the report largely mirrors the fiscal fixes that are in the Build Back Better Act right now, as it was passed by the House. The report made it clear up top that it was just focused on the financial end of things and that Interior is separately working on important things like biodiversity loss, climate change, and new technologies ranging from offshore wind to carbon sequestration. But if you were hoping for a big-picture document that ties all of that together, this was not that report. And I wouldn't blame you if you thought that this report was released for an audience of one because the future of these financial reforms sit in the hands of one man right now, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Manchin has said that he thinks the leasing system needs reform, but he hasn't gotten into specifics. So the big question is whether he will support these very common-sense updates to the Mineral Leasing Act that have been more or less untouched for a century, or if he will blink and water it down at the behest of oil and gas companies that want to keep taking advantage of a system that is totally rigged in their favor. 
Our guest today spent 20 years as a Wall Street analyst, tracking global energy markets, oil and gas companies, the shale revolution, and more. Now he's turned his focus to the global transition to clean energy and what that means for the oil industry. Brad Handler is the principal at Energy Transitions Research and a fellow at the Payne Institute for Public Policy at the Colorado School of Mines. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Aaron. It's nice to join you here. Let's start with uh, the elephant in the room. Starting this summer, we saw a coordinated messaging campaign across conservative circles blaming President Biden's energy policies specifically for rising gas prices across the country. What is your take on that? Is that a a bogus or a legit take on what happened? I do not think that that was a legitimate read on what caused gasoline prices to rise in this country. Um, We can kind of come back to what the Biden administration has done, but perhaps it makes sense to to talk first about what the fundamentals were in play that caused gas prices to to spike higher. Would you agree? Absolutely. Okay. Um, You know, maybe it's going to, if you're talking about fundamentals, and of course you're going to talk about both demand and supply, but the demand was clearly stronger coming out of the COVID-induced decline in demand, really a collapse in demand that we saw in 2020. And the recovery simply came a lot faster than a number of industry representatives, both the analysts, but also to some degree the companies themselves, anticipated. So it was just clearly stronger. So basic supply and demand, the industry cut back, stopped producing, stopped shipping oil during the pandemic, and they just weren't ready for demand to rise that quickly? I mean, at at some level, that's the case. Now, oil is an interesting product when it comes to the supply side, because most of the suppliers of oil in the world are not sitting there in front of a valve able to turn it on and off. There are OPEC suppliers that, in fact, have some of that capability. And you see that when they meet and discuss, are they going to produce to their capacity or are they going to pull back some? That's exactly the kind of manipulation, if you will, or the kind of management that they have the capability for. But most of the suppliers, including just about everyone in the U.S., is generally running their wells more or less to their capacity. That's simply about well management. They could choke it back a little bit, and they did during the COVID, during the COVID weakness. But more or less, you're running wells to capacity. But what does happen, and so we start to revert to the supply side here, is there are some natural declines in every single oil well around the world. And so if you do nothing to those wells, then in one year, they will produce a little bit less than they did in the prior year. And that decline is actually particularly aggressive. The earlier, the younger the well is, the more it declines year on year. And so we saw that phenomenon happen in the United States to some degree through 2021 through uh, versus 2020. So if you're not drilling new wells because you're concerned there's no market for it, therefore your production is going to fall off from the wells you had drilled two or three years before, basically? Exactly. If you're not drilling new wells for whatever reason, and I think we should come back to some of those reasons, but that's exactly that's exactly right. You know, we've started to drift into the supply side, but remember, gasoline prices are not just about how much crude oil there is, but there's also fun, there's also elements of what happens to the crude once it is produced, once it's come out of the ground. And so what we did see was refining capacity has also, some was taken offline during the course of the pandemic. Um, 
part of that was a function to some degree that was a function of climate concerns. There were some inefficient and highly polluting or highly emitting, I guess I should say, refining that was taken offline globally as oil companies thought harder about how do we reduce our global footprint or our carbon footprint, I should say. So there was some element on the supply side, which was right up front, like we talked about upstream with in, ter- in terms of crude supply and how that was being controlled and how and what OPEC's decisions were around that and continue to be around that. And there's also some further downstream impact because some supply was taken offline as well. And so you had this confluence of tightening. And it was easy for them to do that during the pandemic because there was no demand for what they were taking offline that was really dirty to begin with. It makes sense. Exactly. Let's bring in our policy director, Jesse Predis dunn Jesse, welcome back. And you've been, I know, spending a lot of time thinking about this and, and tracking what's going on with production. That's right. And Brad, you mentioned that uh, particularly with a lot of these fracked wells, there's a decline in productivity. And that it's essentially kind of a treadmill. You have to keep drilling and producing new wells to keep supply at its rate. You know, this week we got a couple of interesting data points. Um, a story in The Guardian mentioned that oil profits have risen to about $174 billion. They're raking in cash. Um, but when oil executives convened at the World Oil Congress down in Houston, it seemed like a lot of these profits are being plowed back into shareholder dividends rather than new production. So I guess my question to you is it seems like there's money in the system, but folks are choosing not to prioritize new production. How does this impact prices and supply? Well, that's you're hitting on a really critical point, which is so if we back up a few months, demand is clearly stronger than the industry forecasted it would be the industry gets the opportunity to respond to higher oil prices with more drilling. And many of the players in the industry, private actors, if you will, got, but, but the companies, and I'm not talking about national oil companies, but rather the you know privately owned one, even if they're publicly traded, but, but companies have the chance to respond. And what you're saying is exactly right, that by far and away, those companies, at least if they are beholden to public shareholders, are saying, hmm, no, we're not going to plow all of those additional earnings back into the oil field to raise production because our shareholders are telling us not to. Or some other stakeholders are telling us not to also, by the way, like lenders or banks and that that sort of. So collectively, there is a message being sent to the oil industry, certainly in the United States, saying, be more cautious about how you proceed slow down. This is not, we will not reward you for pursuing growth. I was going to say, it feels like this is a reaction to basically the last decade when a lot of these companies built up uh, enormous amounts of debt um, and they're still kind of underwater. So uh, their shareholders want to be taken care of. Very well, very well put. So if you, if you can rewind a little back to before the pandemic, This message was starting to percolate within the industry and on Wall Street in 2018, 2019. Oil prices had recovered, and yet the return on capital, indices like ROSI or return on investment, these were all very weak for the industry. And that was in large measure because of this treadmill effect that you just referred to, plowing money back in. And 
look, the shale revolution had a lot to do with the motivating factor behind that. Discovering that we could, in fact, economically tap into these shale reserves, which the industry has known about for decades, but never had the technical wherewithal to get at them economically. So the discovery of how to do that, you guys have probably touched on this in other in other episodes, but through the advent of uh, more efficient horizontal drilling, uh, much, much larger and more effective hydraulic fracturing, these techniques and others really fostered this economic development of this product. And so the industry was moving very, very quickly down a learning curve, was able to expand very rapidly in part because of access to capital. And so it was saying, keep feeding us, keep feeding us this capital because it's going to pay off. Our cost of our cost of production keeps falling. We can keep taking this lower, but we need to pursue this relentlessly. And finally, all of the stakeholders I mentioned earlier just said, no, enough. You're now sitting with debt levels that are significantly higher than just about every other sector. So in 2019, they exited 2019 at about two and a half times on a measure of debt to forward earnings. The rest of the industry was sitting at one, unless you were in some specific sectors like utilities where you had very locked in returns, right? And they, and they have always been able to lever up. And so the stakeholders finally said, stop. And that's exactly what you're seeing so that they... It is a very normal promise now by these publicly traded oil companies that they will spend something like 40, I'm sorry, something like 60 to 70% of the cash that they bring in. And instead, they will pay the rest back, either in terms of paying their debt down, which they've done aggressively through 2021, or through dividends or shareholder buybacks or something to please the stakeholders um, in terms of uh, cash return. So it sounds like you're saying there is just less appetite, both among the producers and the folks doing the financing for that kind of development that we saw leading up to 2018, that you're you're not going to see that kind of debt-driven drilling boom that we that's had exactly That's exactly the message. And the result is that if production for many of these companies was growing, you know, seven, eight, 10% a year or whatever it was. And we were seeing the results in the aggregate when we pushed up to almost 13 million barrels a day of production in this country. And now we're down at about 11.2 in part because of less spending and the declines that we discussed before. And none of the messaging coming out of the industry is that we're going to resume that rate of growth again. Rather, it will be low single digit percentage growth, something along those lines. So, so does that just mean gas prices stay high? <laughs> um, there are lots of other variables in that question. Um, it does suggest all else equal that gas prices stay higher. Yeah. But as I think you probably know, at least for now, uh, there is still a lot of spare capacity among the OPEC, OPEC plus countries. And so their decision to very gradually return product to the market has had some bearing on this. And then there was also this a, a bunch of other factors which wound up sort of drawing additional demand that may not be sustained. So we had a, well, I don't know what to call it other than a very weird weather winter, uh, summer, right? We had all over the world. And unfortunately, this seems like something we're going to ha just have to get used to. Weird is the new normal. Right. But there was this confluence of events such that there were, um, you know, there was less wind 
and there was drought in Europe, for example. These have had incremental draws as countries have had to scramble for energy. They've had incremental draws on oil. If those don't persist, then you get a little bit of, of that oil back. You also have new refineries in China starting up. And so there are other factors that will offset your your question, essentially. But but all else equal, again, I'll repeat it. Yeah, there's a little bit less oil to, to work with at the start. Looking at global oil markets then, we, we saw a letter uh, Thursday morning from some members of Congress urging President Biden to uh, continue to allow exports of U.S. oil. That didn't appear to be something that the president was actually thinking about changing anyway. But play out that theoretical for us. Let's say the U.S. was no longer exporting oil tomorrow. Would that actually lower gas prices here? What would be the effect? Or is that just cutting off the U.S. in what is a global commodity market? Yeah, I think it's it's probably more the latter. But let me answer to the degree I can. So oil is not oil around, oil is not always the same. It has different chemical composition. Um, and refining needs to take in that crude and crack it into various products. The fact of the matter is U.S. refining has had to adjust a lot to taking in more Permian oil, which is much lighter. And, and, and when they describe lighter in terms of sulfur content as well as other this hydrocarbon makeup. Um, so it's already had to adapt to some degree. Um, I'm not sure that if you didn't allow exports to, say, Asian refineries that have been established to really work with this very light Permian oil, I'm not really sure how much of a dent you'd wind up making in terms of gasoline supply in the U.S. Because of refining capacity? Least, yeah. At the very least, it would take years to allow the industry to invest appropriately to handle, okay, well, we're just going to have to handle having that much more U.S. Per, really Permian oil. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I I, want to jump back and we've kind of taken it as a a, a matter of fact that gas prices are up, which they are obviously in dollar amounts. But when you take inflation into account, are gas prices all that high historically compared to the last 40, 50 years of, of gas prices in America? I guess that's a, it's a fair it's a fair observation. There have clearly been periods where gas prices have been higher. Um, I suppose I have to defer to the economists who generally suggest that almost and and I feel like this has kind of been said is, is, without regard to other elements of inflation. But when gas prices hit four dollars, there seems to be some demand destruction. And Folks actually start driving less. Yeah, yeah. And that seems to, so again, that's the prevailing view. I'm not really in a position to counter that. Um, and I guess I'll say that that seems to have been true over periods of time. Of course, we've now just gone through a couple of decades with very low inflation. So I suppose it's it's easy for me to sort of fall back into that set, a mindset. But yeah, I don't, um, I, 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 I pr- presumably that's just, you know, it's relevant for that. I want to ask about oil and gas leases, since that's obviously one of the things that we're focused on here on its public lands, we saw folks like the Western Energy Alliance claim that uh, the rise in gas prices was due to the president's pause on new oil and gas leases, uh, even though we, we saw new statistics this week, the Interior Department 
has still been issuing permits to drill at a breakneck pace, even as there was a pause on leasing. So what is that timeline then before, when, when a lease is offered today, let's say that 80 million acres that were offered offshore, 1.7 million acres of those actually leased, how long before those acres actually have an effect on production and gas prices in America? What's, what's the lead up time? Yeah, I guess the answer is that it varies a fair amount. And, and I think one of the observations of the Department of Interior, which is a very fair one, is that so many of the leases are not capitalized on, they're not drilled on, they're not producing from those leases. And it's, and it's a lot of the a lot of the commentary that's come out of the DOI has highlighted that you know very cheap bidding, the, the bidding process, and then very cheap the ability to buy or, or to buy these leases for two dollars an acre, you know, sort of extraordinarily mm-hmm. cheap. Very little commitment to do much about it once you've owned it um, feeds into speculative activity, which is counterproductive and ties up land, and it's kind of hard to argue with that, honestly. Um, but putting those aside, you have very small developers that are oil oil companies, right, that are entirely dependent on federal leasing access. And then you have much larger entities, publicly traded oil companies, which have a balance of private access and public. And although I can't give you data to support timing necessarily for one or the other, I think what is pretty clear is that there are private, there are some private entities that are saying we need this access or else our business, we, we see the end of our business, which would suggest that they're developing at a pretty brisk, brisk pace. And if New Mexico has been, you know, the recent hub of activity as the Permian Basin has been developed in the, the Delaware uh, fast part of it, of the Permian, um, I know that there was very active development on the public lands there as well. So it's a fairly quick turn. I guess I can't help but then come back to kind of how you teed up the question initially, which is that it's really, really hard to see why anything that happened in 21 or any of the administrations, even the pause or the work that's been done by the DOI has had any meaningful impact on the pace of development. The lead time isn't that short. Well, certainly not that short, but it's also more importantly, um, I think as the the DOI has noted in some of what they've done. So they've approved, there's been more leases approved in the most recent fiscal year than at least the first three years of the Trump administration, a very brisk pace of approvals and access after what was a, what proved to be a very temporary pause um, in approving right when, right at the beginning of the administration, the industry is sitting on some 9,600 permit approvals already um, after having over 5,000 approved this year. And so there's no way to really point to limitations of access as being an issue when there's so much. I mean, there, there, many companies have commented they have years of drilling inventory already approved and set to go. So it's more that I guess my objection might be the fundamentals, like tying those two together. I understand you're, you're, you're asking about timing and that makes sense, but even just tying those two together just doesn't really jive. And you know, I'll add, I'll add a couple of data points here. Um, in the sense, I, I think it's roughly seven to nine percent of U.S. oil and gas production that comes from public land. So we're we're talking about you know a fraction of the total. But when when we're talking about leasing, when an oil company buys a lease, they generally have ten years to start production um, and start producing on that. 
And if you take a look at government databases, a lot of leases that are in production date back to like the 40s, like World War II. I mean, these things can live on for generations. And so um, I I think it's a bit disingenuous to say that um, recent uh, restrictions and lease sales are somehow tanking the whole industry when they have, you know, 70, 80 years of these leases, permits, approvals kind of banked. Uh, There's a lot for them to use. Basically, the answer so far is that nothing DOI has done is really uh, impacted gas prices, um, or or Biden for that matter. And so I'm curious, like, first of all, there were those headlines about Biden like drilling in the National Petroleum Reserve or releasing, sorry, not drilling, releasing gas from the National Petroleum Reserve. Did that have an effect on prices? And is there anything that Biden can do in the short term that actually does affect gas prices? Yeah, I think the the uh, SPR release did have an effect, does have an effect. And another way to answer that is I, I think those that poo-poo it, and there are many, tend to say something like, well, 50 million barrels is only, you know, it's it, it's half a day of the world's supply, right? Or it's two or three days, depending on two and a half, I guess, of the U.S. consumption or something like that. And and so they, they, they try to draw it relative to a much larger number, which makes it seem quite small. But but markets, which of course are just trying to anticipate what's going to happen in the near future and then further out, markets work on increments. And they, 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 they don't look at the 50 million. They look at, well, that suggests you're going to, in a market that we call imbalanced because it's half a million barrels a day undersupplied today relative to winter demand, this can help to address that relatively easily. And so I think I, I think that's a better way to look at it. And I actually think it has some value. I, I think otherwise, look, if, if rhetoric matters, and I think rhetoric does matter, then what we're talking about, I, I think what could be constructive is putting the oil and gas industry and the, and the role of oil and gas in energy transition into the appropriate context. Because it was never supposed to be a suggestion that we turn everything off tomorrow and we kill off an industry and we leave people stranded without cars, right? Be- until the uh, electrification can, can carry through. It was never really about that. But it is about being, it's developing a rational timeline and pathways to get to a cleaner world. And obviously that's maybe too nuanced to, 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 to really have, but, but that's exactly what you need to have. So you need to set long-term targets to, you know, to, to, to produce somewhat less of carbon emitting assets and produce a whole lot more of low or zero carbon assets. And then you need to work on things like carbon capture, which take active carbon out of the air, et cetera. So it's part of a much larger picture. And, I don't know that that exactly helps gas prices tomorrow, but I do think that that's what the administration's obligation is to do, is to put what it's talking about into this much larger context of where the country needs to go. So you kind of started to uh, mention this, but looking towards the future and looking towards increased electrification of vehicles um, and kind of reduced demand, one thing I've always thought about is that when it comes to gas prices, this is really an issue around the margins of um, how much does it cost to supply an additional barrel of oil and how much uh, reduced demand is there. 
So if, you know, yesterday we saw President Biden issue an executive order saying the government would go carbon neutral by 2050. The U.S. has a fleet of over 600,000 vehicles that could go electric. If um, demand falls just even slightly below where it is currently, it would seem that that would uh, lead to a, a reduction in demand for that additional barrel of oil. And if we reach that kind of tipping point, is this where we start to see uh, lower gas prices almost in perpetuity just because there's not enough demand for it? Well, yes, Um, acknowledging that it is a global commodity. And so any increments that you're talking about, right, the the proportion, the percentage declines get a whole lot smaller in the global context. Um, but but your point is fair. Uh, I think that's reasonable. Um, the other counterweight is if you continue to underinvest in oil and gas development. And by underinvest, I simply mean not put enough money in to sustain production levels. Then you do get some natural supply declines as well. Now, if you look at OPEC, their trajectory is still towards growth particularly because of the UAE, which is trying to add another million barrels a day of production to take it up to more like five. Um, and so they're not declining. But as we were discussing earlier, the US, which is down about a million five, um, with unclear progression in terms of growth from there, um, and other countries, some for not great reasons, at least not ones by design. You think about Venezuela or you think about West African nations that are declining, not because they really want to. But in the aggregate, my point is that you know, you're know you losing a little bit of supply probably as well. And so that may not provide the offset that you're thinking of to demand. If someone gave you a magic wand across this global commodity market, how do you transition to a lower carbon, carbon neutral economy, how quickly can you do it in a way that doesn't blow up the global economy, but also addresses climate change quickly? What are what are the, the tools and levers that you would be looking at to do that? Well, um, I, I guess I'll turn to what I'm sure some people in the coal industry really hate, which is that coal is the, the, the favorite bugaboo um, it is just that much more carbon emitting than other hydrocarbons. And so the efforts, the initiatives around shutting down existing coal-fired power plants, let alone what we're seeing around the world, which is developing new ones, right? And very quickly assisting those countries with electrification versus encouraging more coal is absolutely critical. Um, so it's so I've sort of sidestepped your. I think you were asking me about oil and gas. Really, but start but with I'm coal, right? Coal is the lowest hanging fruit. There. I mean, sure. It just seems, you know, it's there um, within the oil and gas industry. The other, you know, the lowest hanging fruit, so to speak, is methane. Um, there is technically so much that can be done already. This is not new development. This is not new technology around methane detection and leak prevention and systemic approaches to stop flaring on a regular basis, um, which is, a, excuse me, that's a carbon thing, but but just there's so much oil, oil field management there that's that should be a given. And I think many in the industry recognize that. Um, 
They recognize it either because their social license to operate may be contingent on it, or at least they feel like it is, or it's just the right thing to do. But I think there is a, is a recognition of that. So, so those are big pieces of it. I think the from an oil use perspective, from an efficiency perspective, we are seeing a pretty you know the the, the numbers get lost because they are so small, but the electrification of vehicles in this country and as well as obviously in many other countries um is the uptake is very dramatic and it's sort of at a personal level like where i live outside of uh, new york city i'm actually struck by just how many electric cars i mm. see driving around now it really makes relative to a year ago it's a dramatic difference that probably has to to matter but we obviously need and as my as i talk to my friends they're like yeah but i can't where am I going to, I don't want to get one of these, where am I going to recharge, right? Where, how, it, it, or, or I don't want to wait 40 minutes for, for a charging right. station. So, so there are all of the practical issues, many of which the administration is very well aware of and they speak to, um, but those, we need to continue to make it easier. I want to go back briefly. You mentioned the possibilities of carbon capture and storage. I have been extremely skeptical or bearish. The the, the examples we have seen so far, including this, uh, you know, what was supposed to be a miraculous project in Mississippi, spent billions of dollars and they literally blew it up this year because it just didn't work. Uh, are you seeing something on the horizon that I am not that suggests carbon capture or carbon storage is going to play a significant role in a in an economically feasible way? Because it seems like we're not even close yet, but I mean, there was also some some speculation that in this offshore lease sale, some of the shallow stuff that ExxonMobil was was buying w would be potentially for for carbon storage. Right. We're certainly seeing larger pilot project type initiatives globally. Some of the stuff that's happening in Norway and the North Sea is particularly impressive. I have to better understand what. Uh, what, for example, Exxon is thinking about with this whole sort of Houston-centric project, which obviously is very large scale. I mean, of course, it's, it's worth pointing out that you talk about the economics of something. We are, of course, inventing a market, right? The carbon has no value until we Beyond put a price the very on limited it. applications right. it has today, either for EOR or in some industrial applications, it has no value. So we are, we are as a as a as a world saying, okay, we're we're going to give it value, and a reasonable number is X, whether that's fifty dollars a ton or a hundred dollars a ton or something like that. Um, in that context, I can be encouraging around the idea that it will have value because if if companies just let's just talk about carbon markets, right? If companies are serious about meeting net zero by 20x, 2030, 2040, 2050, then carbon reduction feels like it's an important part of how they get there. A willingness to pay into a market that gives value to carbon reduction is part of that. And so just as you're seeing in Europe with nationally mandated limits, markets, they're now paying 65 euros per ton of carbon. And so you're, you're on your way intellectually to say, yep, this has value and therefore there's work, there's room now. So you look at technologies and I, I honestly probably have to re, I have to refresh on kind of what the exp 
expected sort of economics would be around where technology sits today. My recollection is that direct air capture is still sort of way you know, your pilot projects, but no one's doing it. Way. No one's doing it at a scale that's useful. So right, far. it needs three hundred dollars a ton at this point to make it. And, yeah. and although there's optimism, it just feels like it's really, really challenging. Whereas a lot of the other carbon capture stuff, because inherently you're capturing streams of gas that are a lot more concentrated than we have with direct air capture. So it intellect, intuitively, it makes it seem like it should be a lot easier to get it done at a price that maybe is a lot more like $100 a ton, right? But again, I'm, I'm, I'm playing with the numbers a little bit just because I, need to, I sure. need to check. Overall, are you very optimistic, cautiously, cautiously optimistic, or skeptical that we will, as a country, get there in the next... 15, 20 years? Or, or do you think going fully carbon neutral by 2040, 2050 is still a long ways off or is going to require uh, some more resolve than we collectively have as a country politically? Yeah, I guess I'm un- unfortunately quite skeptical um, because it does. I, I like the idea of, of you know, relying, quote, relying on markets and having private Therefore, having sort of the private sector do a lot of the heavy lifting, but I don't think it can be done exclusively by the private sector. I think targets and limits need to be set, and that has to be done at a political level. And I'm afraid I just don't have the confidence that that's anywhere close to, that we're anywhere close collectively to appreciating that that needs to get done. And therefore, there's no political will. Jesse, Kate, anything else before we go? No, I was just going to say that's a pretty... Sad note to end on, but (laughs) it's also true. (laughs) I I think that is where we will leave it then. Brad Handler is a fellow at the Payne Institute for Public Policy at the Colorado School of Mines. Brad, thank you so much for your time and your insight today. You're welcome. It was a pleasure talking to you guys. Now for some good news to help offset that gloomy prognosis. A new analysis by the Land Trust Alliance found over 61 million acres of private lands in the U.S. are now managed for conservation through nonprofit trust organizations. The review found the amount of land in trust has grown by 33%, or about 15 million acres, since 2010. It says the increase is largely due to a boom in conservation easements, which we recently talked about here on The Landscape. Go check out that episode with Colorado rancher Jay Fetcher if you missed it. And that'll do it for this episode of The Landscape. If you enjoyed what you heard here, please hit that share button. Send us to your friends. This podcast makes an excellent Christmas gift, and it is totally free. Also, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That's the best way for new listeners to find us. And keep those ideas for guests coming our way. Podcast at westernpriorities.org or find me and Aaron on Twitter. On behalf of the whole team here at the Center for Western Priorities, thanks again to Brad Handler. I'm Kate Gretzinger. I'm Aaron Weiss, and we'll be back in a week or two.